welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Cool. Thank you very much for that, uh, Francis. I'm uh, Federico. I'm a sexaholic. Um, grateful to be asked to, to share because it's always a, a great uh, service that's done to me uh, when I get asked to share. It's important that I, uh, that I get to tell some of my story or to share some of my story and some of the stuff that's happened in, in recovery. Um, it's always a, 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 good, um, a good boost to my own recovery. I don't know if it does you any good, but it certainly does me good. So thank you. Uh, thanks to all the people who do service on this meeting as well. Uh, and uh, great to see so many people I know and don't know um, as well, including home group, home group members. Uh, so yeah, that's wonderful. And um, I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to share. I had to resist and surrender the temptation to think about timings, to think about topics, to think about this, to think about that. <clears throat> so um, yeah, so uh, I just want to share exactly as it said on the tin, uh, ex- experience, strength and hope. Uh, so what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. What it was like is, uh, I'm going to try and keep it a bit brief, but my active addiction was over the space of around two decades um, from my early teens. And uh, however, I do know that I was a sexaholic uh, before then. And this is because when I've, when, I've done, uh, when I've done a little bit of looking at my, uh, my dealings with lust, um, I, I realized that probably when I was five or six years old, um, I had a subscription to a very safe, very sober, very normal comic book for children. Um, and it would come every week and I would read it and I would read these things obsessively, even things like Mickey Mouse comic books, whatever. I would lose myself in these books. And I don't think there's anything abnormal in that. You know, lots of children do that. Um, what was not so normal is that I quickly found that if I looked at the female characters in these comic books and if I looked at the, their body parts again and again and again, it gave me a hit of something pleasurable. Now, at the time, I had no idea what sex was, what sexuality was, um, you know, or any of that. I had no idea that there was, there was such a thing as, as sex, but clearly I had found something that made me feel better. Okay, and I had to do it again and again and again. And I am really grateful for the white book because um, the personal story in the white book for me was a really important in terms of identifying uh, some of the patterns in which through which my sexaholism developed. Okay, so that was really really important. And um, uh, and I especially like the first line in the in the personal story, which goes is something like, "What was it like?" I hope I never forget because if I do, I'm liable to go back out there again. So that's why I'm very grateful to be asked to share because it, it helps me to not forget that I'm a sexaholic. Today, it's been very easy not to forget that I'm a sexaholic because about 20 minutes before this meeting, I had to make a phone call to surrender something, you know, and I make several phone calls uh, a day, uh, but it kind of, you know, brings me back to, to what I am, which is a sexaholic and I need this program and I need to use the tools of this program. Anyway, so I think I was, I was, uh, I was, a sexaholic from way before uh, I knew anything about sex, sexuality, anything like that. Uh, last 
whatever. And I guess uh, my story is a, is a fairly standard story. Where, um, I guess one of the important things I need to mention about my own experience is that I moved from Italy to the UK with my family when I was seven. I found that move to be incredibly traumatic. Uh, I, um, it's like the carpet was pulled out from under my feet. I felt very lonely. I felt very angry. I felt very resentful. Uh, I very much missed uh, my hometown, my family, um, my extended family, and all the rest, um, <clears throat> and really disliked, you know, reality, which was that I wasn't there anymore, you know. So I had a problem with reality uh, from when I was about seven years old. A big problem with reality it was incredibly painful, and my reactions were, you know, sort of were to start entering into fantasy, not sexual fantasy, but I would, you know, obsessively read books. Okay, obsessively, just one after the other, comic books, novels, anything I could lay my hands on because, and I would read sometimes until I felt sick. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I would, I would give myself nausea from the amount of reading I was doing. My parents loved it, of course. I was quiet and I read a lot and I, it was great for school. But the reality is, I, I was, I was basically trying to be in a different reality, in a fantasy world. I would, you know, and, um, and when I was in my early teens, uh, that unhappiness, that loneliness, et cetera, had not left me. Uh, I was, you know, very much isolated, didn't feel like I could fit in, belong, all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, and then I discovered masturbation very randomly. Uh, nobody showed me. And for me, that was like discovering cocaine. Uh, a couple of years later, I discovered uh, internet pornography because the, the internet happened. Um, and I was desperate to get the internet. I had no idea what the internet was or what you could get through it. But I remember basically really pushing one of my parents to just sit down with a credit card and sign up to our first dial-up uh, service. And within a few days, I found pornography on the internet, and it was like discovering crack cocaine. And I now believe that that was my disease driving me, because my disease is far more intelligent than I am. And it can see into the future. It can see around corners. It can see to the ends of streets where I, you know, my eyes can't see. Uh, so I've learned, I've learned in, in my recovery to trust my disease. When my disease says there's something you should be looking at, uh, it means there really is something that I usually that I need to just be aware of. You know, I, I need to just be be careful with those things. But anyway, um, I also found that um, I could couple masturbation and in internet pornography with something even more potent. Okay, anger, resentment, envy, jealousy, rage, violent fantasies. I found that I could use these forms of sexual acting out to act out on all those uncomfortable experiences and the discomfort of you know of of being me you know in uh, in in daily life and that was a very powerful brew uh, and i would i would store up these thoughts these vengeful especially uh, sort of vengeful thoughts angry thoughts um all the rest um and it was of course a form of self violence as well uh, because it was violent towards myself and in my 20s as well um you know my my disease you know it it you know, there were things that I thought I would never do. And then I ended up doing, I crossed boundaries uh, that I thought I would never cross. Uh, once or twice, I ended up in um, sort of crossing the gender boundary as well, in the sense of um, acting out with the uh, same sex acting out. Now I have zero attraction to the same sex, absolutely zero. However, it doesn't matter to my disease. Uh, so if my disease says to me, you know, move towards acting out with this man, I will do it if I'm in active addiction because I have no power over what my disease suggests uh, to me. Uh, 
when I'm in active addiction. And, um, and yeah, so in my 20s, it's just more of the same, more loneliness, increasing isolation. I studied, I got a job. Um, and um, uh, yeah, um, and, and I, I now see how my 20s, especially, I, there was lots of things that I wanted to do, dreams that I had, uh, goals that I had, and I just, I couldn't follow through on any of that. Um, I was full of fear, which is the other side of the coin of, of acting out. Um, and um, yeah, and so ended up, you know, in lots of situations that I chose as a result of, you know, acting out, uh, isolating and living in fear and living in pain, uh, in pain as well. Um, and my, my acting out started to seriously affect my mental health. I developed uh, debilitating phobias, um, a lot of obsessive thinking that was outside of the, of the sexual kind of uh, fold. Uh, and also some, some, I, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but in alcohol, in alcoholism, you can talk about an alcoholic psychosis where you start seeing things and believing things. And I started believing things that weren't real. You know, for example, I started looking for images of my wife, uh, who was then my fiance or girlfriend before then, um, I started looking for her in pornography. I started looking for people I knew in pornography because I became convinced that everybody was involved in the pornography industry. Um, totally insane. But I, I truly believed that, you know, what I could see, I started believing that what I could see on the screen was, was actual, actual reality. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember in my late teens, you know, thinking that things like prostitution were absolutely immoral, disgusting. I would never do it. You know, just, I found it just, you know, an absolutely repulsive idea. Um, and by my mid-20s, I was regularly fantasizing about uh, prostitution, looking up all sorts of information, acting out uh, whilst looking at this information, uh, going to and from uh, sort of places of, of, of prostitution. Um, and I was getting ever closer, for example, to crossing that boundary as well, which I did cross with webcam sex because that is a form of prostitution. I paid for webcam sex and um, I crossed that boundary, you know, and uh, I remember the day I crossed that boundary because I crossed it in this, and my wife was sitting just at the other end of the room. And I was just sort of basically hidden away doing this stuff without her sort of realizing what I was doing. And I, I just could not help myself or stop myself. And I remember the guilt and the shame that sort of accompanied that. Um, but just, um, um, just I, I don't want to, you know, spend the whole share talking about my acting out, but I had a particularly, uh, basically I got married in 2009. I had tried to approach SA a year previously, but never got to a meeting. In 2009, uh, just a couple of months after I got married, I realized there was something seriously wrong because by that time I couldn't really sleep anymore. Um, I, you know, I was spending hours acting out every, every night. I was sometimes choosing not to go to work so I could spend the whole day acting out at, at, at home. Um, I was starting to get into slightly, well, slightly uh, dangerous um, forms of acting out as well in terms of in public, uh, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I started getting desperate, you know, my, my mental health and my physical health was really, really affected to the extent that, you know, sometimes I had to, you know, I would get up to go to work, I'd get on the, on the train. I had to have one or two really strong coffees just to get myself to nine in the morning. I would have to lock the door of my office and just lie down on the floor, which is basically concrete covered with a thin strip of carpet. And I would, you know, pass out basically and sleep uh, for 20 minutes uh, just because um, because of the tiredness, the exhaustion. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, the whole day was, was full of anxieties, was full of fears, etc. And, uh, you know, alcoholics <clears throat> go on binges. I used to go on binges all the time. 
but I, but a couple of a, a couple of um, weeks after joining SA, I went on a on a business trip to San Francisco, um, and um, and I had uh, what what was basically a, a drunk week there. You know, I, I landed in San Francisco, checked into my hotel. And then all the fear, all the loneliness, all the isolation, all the feelings of being less than, all that kind of stuff hit me, and I couldn't uh, get out of it. And I spent a week with a very simple pattern. I would act out sexually using pornography, and then every once in a while, I would leave the hotel, go around the corner to the liquor store, buy beers, get back to my hotel room, and basically yeah, act out, get drunk, um, sleep, repeat. And every time I went to the liquor store, I passed by a um, Massage parlor, uh, a dodgy massage parlor, obviously. Um, and I would look in, take a good long drink of whatever I could see and move on. And I would fantasize. And of course, fantasy leads to reality for a sexaholic like me. And after a few days, one night, I left the hotel with the intention of just going to buy some beers. And I walked into the massage parlor instead. And I asked the person at the counter whether they had any appointments. Uh, and they said, no, but you can wait here uh, or it'll be probably about half an hour. You can come back. Uh, so I said, okay, I'll come back. And I left the massage parlor and I had a moment of clarity. So when I stepped outside of the massage parlor, I had this horrendous moment where it was as if somebody had just taken the scales from my eyes. Uh, and I, it was a sickening, sickening moment of terror because I realized then that I hadn't made a decision to walk into that uh, massage parlor. I felt completely driven. There was something driving me. Okay, there was something that was more powerful than I was, and that I now know is lust, my disease, and it was driving me. And I felt completely out of control. And then I also felt very alone. I then realized, I, I remember the sort of the next realization was, oh, this is why those sexaholics in those meetings talk about making phone calls. And I, I thought, I've got to talk to someone, but I didn't have you know, any, any numbers I could call uh, at that time. It didn't even cross my mind that in San Francisco, there might be an SA meeting or two. Uh, so I never got to SA meetings in San Francisco. But, uh, but it was basically a week of total binging on lust, totally being drunk on lust, um, and just the, yeah, the, the absolute sort of interior destruction that went with that was just, was just insane. Anyway, that's um, that's all I kind of want to share about my my story. But um, when I got back to the UK after that uh, that trip, lots of other really negative stuff happened that was that was lust related. But anyway, I got a sponsor, um, and um, uh, yeah, I got a sponsor and started working the steps. But I um, the fir my first year and a half in SA was probably the most painful year of my life. I went very close to suicide, um, and um, uh, I basically relapsed on a regular basis. And when I say I got a sponsor, I got a sponsor, but then spent a year and a half desperately trying to do everything uh, as I, you know, sort of would decide to do it. So I messed around with the sobriety definition. I messed around with uh, the idea of technical sobriety. I absolutely really hate that term, <clears throat> you know, um, the idea of technical sobriety anyway. Uh, so I would call myself in my mind technically sober, call myself sober in meetings, but I wasn't really sober. I was doing all sorts of stuff that wasn't uh, that wasn't sober. My sponsor would give me suggestions, but my sponsor is very soft spoken. So I would basically bat them away as soon as he suggested them. I only called people who weren't sober and were struggling. I got into a few really toxic phone relationships with uh, other fellows. Toxic, not from a lust perspective, but from an emotional perspective. And I basically 
didn't do anything that was suggested to me in the program. And things got a hell of a lot worse. I guess it's a little bit like uh, in AA, uh, what they say when they say, you know, it's really awful to have the experience of having a belly full of alcohol and a head full of AA. And similarly, you know, it was awful to have a, you know, brain full of lust and uh, and a head full of SA. Um and uh, my sponsor during that year and a half just kept on suggesting to me that I that I get to a convention because I was also um after a couple of months I'd moved away several hours away to a city uh where there was no SA and he was suggesting to me you know get to AA meetings open AA meetings because at the time I hadn't recognized my alcohol problem either um so get to AA meetings um get to SA meetings on the phone get to intergroup meetings and recovery days get to conventions and I wasn't listening but then finally, out of desperation, in 2000 and, at the end of 2010, I got to a, sorry, start of 2011, whenever it was, I got to, finally got to a convention. And until then, I'd been to several SA meetings. But at the convention, I, was, I finally had the experience of sitting in a room where there must have been 50 other fellows. It was a UK convention. And I started hearing hope. I started seeing hope. I started seeing sexaholics who were smiling, who were talking about, in you know, the miracles that were happening in their sobriety. And I, I only said one thing in that convention. You know, I, I listened a lot. Uh, the only thing I said was once I said, my name's Federico, I'm a sexaholic. That's it. That's the only thing I said. And I only said it because an old timer basically pointed at me and a, a bunch of others who were very silent and said, say something. <laughs> and so that's what I said. Um, and, um, but I, you know, in that convention, I got hope and I got a sense of peace and I realized that I felt a real sense of connection that I had not felt before ever. Okay. Uh, and it was addictive as well. You know, it was very, very good. I wanted more. I wanted what these people had. Uh, and I, 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 I got sober, uh, after that convention. Uh, now the sobriety didn't last after about five months. I listened to my head when my head said after a very tiring day, uh, you can look at one image, and I listened to that uh, to that uh, a non-pornographic image, and it'll be fine. I listened to it, and and I of course I relapsed, uh, but I've been sober since then. Thank God, one day at a time. Um, and what really also changed things for me uh, was starting to look at lust rather than sexual behaviors, which is what I was doing before. Um, you know, and starting to understand that lust is a lot like alcohol in the sense that. Different forms of sexual acting out are different forms of lust delivery. They're different lust delivery mechanisms. Uh, lust is what I'm addicted to. And, um, and it's a bit like alcohol. You know, an alcoholic isn't addicted to beer or wine or spirits. They're all alcohol delivery mechanisms. Uh, so likewise, for me, when I came into SA, I thought my problem was pornography, masturbation, this form of acting out, that form of acting out. I could only see that. I couldn't see the point of lust or focusing on lust. Um, so that, that happened, which was, which was incredibly positive, but also what was a real blessing is I uh, had the chance to go to a couple of workshops within that first year of sobriety. One was a 12 traditions workshop, which was really helpful in showing me and giving me the experience of this being a, we program. Uh, it's about us. It's not about me, uh, coming to meetings is not about me, but it's about, uh, it's about us. It's about, you know, the group, the newcomer, et cetera. Um, and also I went to a 12 step workshop and that was vital for me because the 12 step workshop started on a Friday and ended on a Sunday. It was about 48 hours overall. And what it gave me was a program. 
Okay, until then, I treated the steps pretty much like an intellectual exercise. I wanted to spend ages on step one. You know, my story, my biography is so interesting. I'm so interesting. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to, you know, to, to basically spend months on the steps. But after this weekend, I had a daily program that I could go to that I still use today um, of very simple actions that help me work those steps in my daily life. Uh, and this is something that, that I try to communicate to sponsees and to newcomers as well. That there is a program that I can follow on a daily basis. It's not hard. It's not difficult. Um, it's actually quite simple, um, and uh, and that was that was massive for me. That sort of shift uh, to realizing that I've got to take some actions. It's not just about sitting and writing and you know writing these big long stories uh, about uh, about myself in um, you know in step one. So that was that was absolutely that was absolutely uh, crucial for me. Um, and, um, and for me, it's still, you know, it's still a real miracle, you know, waking up sober, uh, going through the day sober, being able to, to say at the end of the day, you know, I have been kept sober by my higher power, you know, because if there's one thing that I, that I also remember the moment I realized a few months into sobriety that I wasn't doing this, you know, there was something else that was shielding me that was keeping me sober. Um, and, uh, and that's been a, a big part of my journey over the last few years actually is working on that connection, you know, working on the connection with my higher, with my higher power, looking at a lot of the issues and obstacles I had with step two, and that were related in part to how I perhaps viewed my higher power, but also how I viewed my higher power through the lens of my relationship with my parents, um, which is covered, I think, in, in step into action. Um, and, um, and also step 11. So kind of getting into step 11, uh, looking at the prayer side of things, but also meditating. So these days, uh, what I do like doing, it doesn't happen every day because I, I have young kids and, you know, things, things need to be flexible, but most days, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is, um, so I, I sleep very close to one of my kids who basically has these like radar ears. So if I move, she's like bang awake. And then it's like game over. So I've developed this like mission impossible style skills of sort of basically kind of coming off the bed, swiveling sideways, putting my feet on the floor, and then I stop and I meditate. Now, actually, that's not quite true. The first thing I do is I get on my knees. I say, thank you for keeping me sober. Please keep me sober for the rest of today. And then I, and then I sit down and I, and I meditate. Um, at the moment, I'm using the, uh, the first line of the step 11 prayer um as 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 a form of meditation and then i run through my plans for the day or rather than run through i kind of put them to my higher power uh who usually has different ideas and um and then i simply ask the question and sit in silence you know sort of the question is what's your will for me you know higher power and he generally doesn't answer uh in uh, in uh, necessarily in that moment but today for example I was kind of frustrated. I thought, you know, I've just sat here in silence. It's just been a few minutes of, thank you, Francis, a few minutes of silence. I haven't really gotten any guidance out of this. I have used two-way prayer, by the way, as well in the past. But then I went for a run and suddenly there was that bang, that, in, that occasional inspiration. And I, I sort of realized that's, you know, that's the message. That's what I needed to, to sort of pay attention to today or do today or, or, or take action on today. So it can, you know, these these things can can come up um, at other times. Anyway, so it feels like I'm starting to waffle. Um, so I'll uh, I'll uh, leave it there and hand it over. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Uh, yeah, thank you, Federico, for your share. Uh, I'd just like to share with everybody that um, Federico was the 
first person I came into contact with in SA. And uh, his friendship has been one of the most vital, important friendships I've had in my life. And he's encouraged me and been there for me uh, through difficult times, through times when I've made wrong decisions. And um, I don't really have a question, but I, I just want to say, if, you know, Federico, thank you for everything you've done in my life. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. Okay, Luke, you're next. Hi, this is Luke. I don't know if you can see me. I'm outside in the dark. Um, this is the, the 15 minutes of praising Federico because I'm very happy to have you in alive also, Federico. You're in my inner circle of trustworthy persons that I call to or that I send text messages to. So thank you so much for that. And something you said hit me very hard. That was, I think you said something like, um, I developed a problem with reality, a big problem. And that's my experience also. From early childhood on, I developed a big problem with reality, with life as it is. And <clears throat> I'm, I think recovery is trying to get out, trying to change that into um, a love for reality. Yeah. So my question is, well, obviously in your story, when I hear your story, you progressed a whole way on embracing reality as it is today. But what are you doing today in the moments that, that you still have a big problem with reality? Thank you for listening. Thank you, Luke. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for your share. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> what a question. Um, I still have a lot of problems with um, with reality. I think trying to live in the present moment is uh, is absolutely crucial. And I think for me, one of the key issues there is trust and handing over. You know, am I trusting my higher power? Am I handing over uh, on on a on a daily basis um, as well? But there are there are some things though that um, that I've noticed some you know some situations that I really had a problem with you know when I came into SA and for years afterwards um, around work around travel around family they are better in some cases infinitely better like you know really a lot better um, and I haven't tackled them head on you know it's you know they've gotten better um, and I'm not reacting to them in, in the same way as I used to, uh, in the same very negative ways, uh, very toxic ways as I used to. And I, I sort of have to look back sometimes and think, where have those reactions gone? You know, and like I said, you know, it hasn't been me. So I don't know, that probably doesn't answer your question. But um, yeah, the thing about reality is, is, is a really important one. Thank you, Federico. Thanks, Federico. Uh, our next question is coming from Cathy. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Federico, for your share. Very, very nice to hear. Um, and for your friendship and example these months. Um, I'm seven months sober. I've been in SA 16 months, I think. Um, you mentioned in your act of eight years, you used to have trouble sleeping and you used to sleep at work. That also applied to me. Do you I still struggle with going to bed and sleeping through the night. I used to have such fears and this was sobriety at night. Do you have any tips? 
Yes. Uh, so thank you for that uh, for that question, Kathy, and, and thank you for sharing about your own issues with sleep. That was massive for me when I came into, into SA. It was also a little bit dangerous because I'd gone into, it was so extreme for me that I'd started, um, at the start of my journey in sobriety, I was still drinking alcohol uh, and I'd started sometimes even doing things like mixing uh, sleeping pills and alcohol, which is you know generally not good for one's health. Uh, and potentially fatal. Um, and um, uh, so I was desperate. Um, but my, but one, the one thing I would like to share is that this went on for several years. I still had a lot of problems for probably three or four years. It was when I was five years sober that I had my first year, full year, without having a single night of insomnia. Uh, and I found that uh, none of that has to put me at danger of losing my sobriety. It, it simply is. It is It is what it is. Uh, and it was what it was. Um, it was just a situation that I didn't like, but that I could accept. Uh, and I got used to it. And I got used to doing things around it. What did help me was staying sober, staying in recovery, because that really brought my anxiety levels down. Um, and, um, and trying to, you know, basically uh, work out ways in which my evenings, especially, I could live in a sober way. Uh, so for me, living them in a sober way meant no, you know, being very careful about the, you know, <clears throat> my bedtimes being very regular, not doing any, any sort of, uh, stimulating, um, things like watching things at night, uh, being careful with the material I read, because like I probably came through in my share, I, I can get drunk on anger as well. So I would, I would read a lot of angry books, uh, which wasn't, wasn't great for me, especially at night, being careful with what I ate, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, and for me. It sounds like it's outside of the program, but for me, it kind of isn't in the sense that it all was part of the package of trying to live life differently. Thanks. Thanks, Federico. I uh, just have a couple of questions coming up. We've still got time. So I'm going to say anybody with less than 30 days, if you wish to share, please just rate your virtual hand. Uh, Greg, you're next up. Yeah, my name is Greg. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. And uh, thank you so much, Federico, for that uh, share. Uh, you know, the share, it, it really sounded like me, the powerlessness. I think you really did an excellent job of showing that, uh, how lust is really a drug. You know, I think the example you showed of going into the uh, massage parlor and not knowing how you got in there and, and everything and were able to snap out of it. I mean, that's just, that happened to me only. I wasn't able to get out of it, but uh, you know, it, it was really amazing. Also making phone calls. You also said how important that was. Uh, the transparency that you used in your share was really good. How important could you comment on how important transparency is in making daily phone calls when you surrender your lust and spe specificity in those phone calls too? Yeah. Thank you very much for, for that. Cause actually I said, I went to two workshops at the start of my recovery. I went to three. So you just reminded me. And that was a key message from the third workshop. I went to a workshop with um, uh, a fairly well-known speaker from uh, Nashville uh, who doesn't live in Nashville anymore, I, I hear. And uh, part of the message of that workshop for me was um, get honest, you know, really get honest. What, it, what is it that's going on in my head? What is it that I need to bring out? 
And at that workshop, I was able to share some forms of acting out that I had never shared before in SA, even with my sponsor, and things that I realized I had not shared with my sponsor or in my step one, because I was so, so deeply ashamed of them. And so since then, what I tried to do, and not I understand that not everybody is willing to, to listen to an explicit share, uh, but I do share explicitly, and uh, I don't use sort of fuzzy terms for what I need to share and surrender. I try to, when I, when I do this, I think what is helpful for me is I don't just say, hey, this came into my mind. I try to do it in an attitude of surrender. Uh, so, you know, I would like to surrender and send away to my higher power this, 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 and this. Uh, I don't want to do that, actually, most, you know, but it's helpful for me. I don't want to do it because I, I feel ashamed of you hearing how crazy my head is. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I had to do this, like I said, 20 minutes before the meeting. Um, but, um, but yeah, for me, it's, it's useful for them to be, for my shares, my, my, if, if the other person's willing to listen to it, um, to be explicit, but in an attitude of surrender and to be specific. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Federico. Thanks, Federico. Just before we move on to the next question, we just got a comment in chat from uh, Rashna, who unfortunately had to go off early because she's gone down with Omicron symptoms. But she just wanted to say thank you and to convey her best regards. That was from Rashna. Okay, Alice. Uh, hi, Federico. Thank you very much for your share. Um, you say that uh, um, actions uh, were um, an important, uh, um, 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 important things for you. Um, and uh, I would to to ask you um, which uh, um, um, which actions every every day you started to to do for your recovery. I can imagine something like uh, callings or reading or uh, I don't know gratitude list. But uh, I would to ask you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Uh, thanks for that that question. So yeah, I guess it's it's the yeah like like you were saying it, it's the basic the basic I guess actions of um, of of working the program like like you were saying yes uh, you know prayer meditation uh, making those phone calls um, getting to meetings for me it also involves getting out of my comfort zone and getting to uh, conventions or recovery days whether in the UK or abroad as well that's been a big part of my of my recovery um and um and also increasingly um because i have uh, i have a family uh trying to take the actions of uh, of love and service in the family as well it's it's easy for me to do service in sa sometimes and feel great but it's much harder for me on a cold night like last night to take out the recycling bins you know when it's uh, when it's cold and my wife could do it if i wait long enough you know um so um yeah so trying to take the actions of service you know when I was really struggling with temptation early on in sobriety, I would call a couple of old timers and I hated doing so because when I would say, oh, I'm really tempted, they would say, okay, stop, go out into the street, pick up, you know, bits of rubbish, put them in the rubbish bins. When you've done 10 of those or whatever, come back and give me a call. And if I was still struggling, they would say, go out again, pick out another, you know, and it was basically an action. It was giving, it wasn't engaging my brain because I'm very analytical. I want to turn everything into an intellectual exercise. But the problem is I live here and not in my heart. And that that's where the program works. It works in the heart. For me anyway. Thank you. Thanks, Federico. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Federico. Very good. Thank you, Luci. Uh, Susie. Hi, 
Oh, thank you. This is Susie. Um, thank you so much for your share. Let me get my video back on here. Thank you. Sorry. Um, you made a reference to, um, I don't know if you use these words, but basically to just running your own program for a while that you didn't listen to your sponsor and you just kind of did whatever. Um, what advice can you give me as a sponsor uh, for a sponsee who is not taking suggestions and really doing her own program right now? And um, she has a service position in an inner group that um, she really, I mean, she's not doing the program. So I think that she needs to relinquish that position. And sadly, I'm also the chair of that inner group. So I have two hats there. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Susie. Uh, I don't know. I really struggle with this with this one as well. Um, I think, well, it um, if a sponsee is struggling with sobriety and isn't sort of taking the actions of sobriety, I don't know. I, I've sort of gone through different different iterations of uh, of how I approach that kind of topic. But um, sometimes people just aren't there. They, and and I you know and I know that because I wasn't there for a year and a half in in SA. Mm -hmm. I just I couldn't hear it. It's not that I you know maybe I wasn't willing to hear the the message or to hear the suggestions, but it's almost like I really couldn't hear it. Uh, and so sometimes. You know, my sponsor just says sometimes you just need to sort of walk walk with the sponsee until they're ready or until they've hit their head against the wall enough times that they're they're willing to see that. I guess situations like your um, I feel I feel very uncomfortable in situations like the ones you've described though, because I guess the way to go about it is a gentle, direct talk, and I hate conflict. I hate anything which involves me, uh, and so that's my character defect. Uh, and. I had to do that with a fellow who was going, I, he was a regular check-in partner and I was hearing more and more and more and more lust craziness coming in to his check-ins. And I, I felt toxic after talking to him and, but I couldn't say anything to him. And then under the guidance of my sponsor, I did. Uh, and it didn't help because he relapsed. Um, but about a year later, when he got back into the program and he's, you know, he got sober, he called and thanked me. Because he said, even though I relapsed, that was the first time uh, somebody has actually said to me, hey, this isn't okay. I'm here, you know, alarm bells are going off. So, yeah, perhaps sometimes being gently direct um, helps. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, and thanks for your share. Uh, Federico, I have a question for you. Um, so when you are in a group and uh, you see a newcomer, common and uh, they are remaining sober but you know the recovery is missing the sobriety might be there but the recovery is missing from them and like you said you don't like to confront people usually I do leave people to their sponsors but if uh, they are uh, doing uh, something that really needs to be confronted and told um, for the benefit of the group because you see them bossing people around or something, then uh, would you take up that kind of conflict or, or would you hint at it that they need to check with their sponsor because 
I really sometimes I feel my hands are tied and I am not able to say something, but there is a visible, visible thing. Yeah, that you want to address. Yeah, thank so how you would that. you address that? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Shibra. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know is the honest answer. Uh, I think I would have, if a situation came up that was specific, uh, I think I'd have to, yeah, like you said, you know, talk about it with my sponsor, uh, et cetera. It is, it is true that I've got to be careful, I guess, if I'm, um, if, if I'm in my home group, for example, and I've been in this situation before a few years ago where my home group got kind of big, but it got kind of big because we were joined by a bunch of people from another S fellowship uh, who came on a regular basis uh, and, but weren't interested really deep down in the essay sobriety definition. And after a year or so, they left. But the group, uh, I started becoming really uncomfortable with some of this, with some of how the group was going, uh, the group consciences uh, and all that kind of stuff, especially around the sobriety definition. Um, and I guess all I could do was, was gently play the broken, broken record uh, in, in these, in these situations. That, that's the only thing that kind of comes to mind that might be related to the kind of thing you're asking. Okay. Thank you. So your answer is to just look away. No, no. I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is you'd have to look at the specifics of the situation. Um, because what the way, I guess your question was, was quite generic not in the sense that it was vague but in the sense that it doesn't you know there are different situations that have to do i guess with the way people's i don't know behavior or um attitudes in the group can affect the group um so i, I so i'm not saying yes look away and sort of let you know let toxic things happen but i guess it has to be you have to really look at the specific the specifics of the situation and yes you know guidance from a sponsor uh, is useful and also of course when I'm not happy with something, I need to look at my side of things as well. You know, how am I reacting to this? Why am I reacting in a particular way um, as well? Thank you. Okay, thank, thanks, Fred. Thanks, Ashipra. Uh, Richard. Thanks for your share, Federico. I really relate to a, a lot of that. Um, uh, I'm very interested to know how you went about developing your uh, morning meditation and your morning time um, and it, it's something that that, that I do uh, I'm just really interested to, to, to hear how other people go about it um, how you developed it uh, what other techniques you may have tried um, to, to, to connect uh, with your higher power through a time of quiet and meditation thank you oh massive question <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Richard. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you for that question. I guess I started off with just praying, uh, basically. And then after a few months of sobriety, uh, I was going a bit crazy on various situations. And an old-timer in the States, who I call on a regular basis, just said, you know, Federico, from today, just sit down, put a timer on for five minutes, and just shut up for five minutes. And that's how my meditation started. And that's what I say to my sponsees uh, today, um, you know, to just start with three minutes or five minutes of just silence. And I find that that is, that is particularly helpful for me. But then um, it kind of developed into a bigger practice of like around 20 minutes of, of silence and then my program prayers. Um, but I found two things. Number one, I found that I got very attached to particular ways of meditating and praying to the extent that I would get stressed if I couldn't do the same thing every day. 
Uh, and especially when I had kids, uh, that became a challenge. And I realized that I was starting to get pretty obsessive about, uh, you know, like somebody asked before about reality. You know, the reality is if I've got two kids who've woken up, um, I can't spend 20 minutes in meditation. And so then I have to look at why am I fearful and stressed? I'm fearful and stressed because I'm afraid that God's going to punish me, maybe with a loss of sobriety. Uh, and there I, I need to ask myself, well, where was, where's my step two? You know, it ha what, what's happened to my step two then? uh if if that's the case uh and um and so and, and so that was one thing but then i also at some point realized there was just something that wasn't quite working with the meditation it was very peaceful i really liked it it was giving me something but when i looked a bit more into step 11 i realized that for me anyway my reading of step 11 in the literature is that step 11 is not about me getting peace me getting something um you know it's not about taking some kind of tranquilizer you know which is how i was treating it it's about opening myself to, to communication with God and seeking God's will in my day, in my 24 hours. And so that changed the way I approached meditation, really, um, which is I moved away from a sort of focus on just, you know, breathing and silence and all the rest. I still integrate silence and breathing and all, all that kind of stuff. But I asked the questions um, of, you know, what is your will for me today, God, you know, uh, because if I'm if I'm trying to somehow be along the lines of God's will, then I'm my my belief is that I'm 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 as you know far away as I can get from from acting out and from lusting uh, in some way. So that that's kind of how it's it's developed. But also, I I get a lot of like gratitude sometimes when I when I pray, which is which I I find amazing, and also increasingly. So I've I, in the last few years I've started running, uh, and I I tend to run slowly. Uh, and I run out in nature, uh, and there's something about that. You know, I pray as I run, uh, and sometimes I'm just overwhelmed by. Sometimes I'm just like exhausted. Like I went for a run this morning; it was awful, it was horrendous. But sometimes it's like I get these just non-stop gratitudes coming up, uh, which is I, I think it is that is also part of connecting with with my higher power. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Federico. Thank you very much. Okay, we've got our last question. We're just time for this one comes from Michal. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Good. So I'm Michal, grateful recovering sexaholic. And thank you for the sharing. Uh, I relate to a lot of this, uh, especially for the fantasy and uh, reading and that the lost is a... Uh, uh, a, a power that greater than me. Um, and I want to ask, uh, what is this for you, a uh, victory over last that is uh, increasing, like they say in the white book? Um, and maybe how to realize that I seek and not uh, mean, not uh, because sometimes when I have lost in my mind, I I feel pity and not uh, okay, something like this. Uh, okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Michal. Um, I'll, I'll keep it brief because I'm just aware of of, of the time as well, but. Um, yeah, in terms of like progressive victory, progressive victory of a lust. Um, uh, I, instead of giving like some sort of theoretical answer, so about uh, probably several months into sobriety, I went to a recovery day in London, 
And in the break that we had, we, I went, sorry, in the lunchtime that we had, there was no lunch provided. So I went out with a fellow who had some years of sobriety and we sat in a station, a railway station, a restaurant, which had a big glass wall. And I sat there and I looked at my plate because I could not look out of this big glass wall. It was just nonstop, you know, nonstop temptations to look, to lust, to objectify. And this guy was just sitting and he was eating and he was looking out of the, of the glass. And I asked him, you know, like, how can you do this? You know, how can you, how can you look out? And he just turned around and he said to me, it's just not an issue anymore, you know? And a few years, and, and things like busy city streets for me were, were just really hard places. And a few years later, I was walking through central London and I realized I was, I was okay. You know, I was, I did, wasn't feeling this incredible pull to look left, right, and center. When I did, I could look at the floor or, you know, sort of surrender in my mind, but it was mostly okay. And it mostly felt peaceful. So I think that's kind of what progressive victory over lust looks like is an increasing sense of, 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 of peace and a feeling shielded uh, from lust. Although lust is still there, you know, lust is always going to be there to try to get me, you know, that's, I, I firmly believe that about my lust. Thanks. Thanks Federico. Thanks Michal. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the daily reprieve, the best source for experience, strength and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Uh